Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and magnificent promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the flesh that is in the world." As we prepare to study the Word this morning, let's just go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word today, to be refreshed in our thinking about why we come to church, what the significance of our congregational meeting is as we assemble together in order to worship you and to study your word and the significance of this for our spiritual life that as our Lord prayed uh, the night before he went to the cross, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is your word that that you use to mature us and to teach us the truth so that we may live in a way that honors and glorifies you and think in a way that is reflective of the thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we study today, help us to understand the significance of what we're studying for our own spiritual life and the importance of that we should place upon the meeting of the church coming together to study your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking at the last few words in Ephesians 4.11, the phrase pastor and teacher. Just exactly what does that mean? You will hear of people who say that there are five gifts listed here in this passage. Others will say there are four. Some will emphasize that these are gifted leaders, gifted men, not spiritual gifts. And there just seems to be a lot of confusion here. Some do not understand how to interpret and understand this phrase. And even those that come close to it often do it on a wrong basis because of their failure to properly understand the underlying uh, Greek in the passage. So this is an extremely important passage for us to study and message to comprehend because this is the foundation for our philosophy of ministry here at West Houston Bible Church and many other solid biblically-based churches. A lot of times I'll have people ask me questions about churches or they listen regularly but they think they should be involved in a local church, which is true. But then they go from church to church and they say, but their doctrinal statement is okay. Well, sometimes the doctrinal statements are fairly short and abbreviated and they're okay, but they don't get really into any of the significant details that challenge churches in this generation. That is usually because those issues are part of what we would call the philosophy of ministry. 
And you can have any number of churches that have the identical doctrinal statement, but what they do on Sunday morning or in Bible class is vastly different from one another. And that has to do with where they think the priorities in Scripture are, and it has to do with their philosophy of ministry. And much heresy actually gets promoted in a lot of churches because they have a non-biblical philosophy of ministry. And so this is so important to understand this, and you rarely see anybody go into detail on this in a lot of these, a lot of these churches. What we often find when we come to talking about pastors and the role of pastors and what a pastor is supposed to be is a lot of divergent opinions. People have many strange ideas about what a pastor is supposed to do. I had a relative who thought that I was nothing more than a social worker. I have had others that have many other ideas. I've been the pastor of a church where I was uh, facetiously a few weeks ago. I, I read some things that people expect of a pastor. They expect him to be out visiting the people all week and always in his office. And that is uh, that there's a lot of truth to that in a lot of congregations. Uh, you will sometimes hear people say that uh, or comment on the fact that something was very pastoral. Others uh, will uh, say that, oh, that pastor is more of a pastor than he is a teacher. Others will say he's more of a teacher than he is a pastor. Others focus on uh, pastoral preaching from the pulpit and as opposed to teaching. And uh, in other denominations, many ethnic denominations, someone is a good pastor because they do home visits and they're involved politically in the uh, local city council. They get involved in social causes and they're uh, visiting the sick. In fact, in many denominations, their understanding and expectations of a pastor are not Bible-based at all. They're just based on sociology, and that has nothing to do with the Bible. So we need to answer this question some more today. What does the Bible say about pastors? Our passage is Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he himself, referring to Christ in the context, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This is really the mission statement for the philosophy of ministry of every church and is sadly ignored. So what we have looked at in the past is what the Bible teaches about shepherds. For the Greek word that is used to translate pastor is the word for shepherd. A pastor is a shepherd of people rather than a shepherd of literal sheep. Congregations are analogous to a flock of sheep. That's not a compliment. Sheep are the, some of the dumbest animals on the planet. And you just look at how the congregation, the assembly of Israel, functioned in the Old Testament, both in terms of false shepherds 
as well as in terms of being a great illustration of how dumb sheep are. So what we concluded by looking at the Old Testament and various passages related to shepherds as it's analogous to either A, the Lord is my shepherd, or the leaders of Israel who were called shepherds, that the role of the shepherd is to lead, to guide, to feed the people with knowledge and understanding, to heal those wounded by sin, to teach and provide security, uh, to restore the scattered, to seek the lost, to protect, and to correct. That's what we get from looking at Psalm 23 and a number of passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah 40.11 says, He, God, He is the pattern of the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. So he sets the standard, not sociological textbooks, not various uh, polls taken among Christians, uh, not any of these modern ideas that, and even older ideas that are not biblical. God, he, will feed his flock like a shepherd. That's what a shepherd, this is a primary focus of what a shepherd does is provide nourishment. Literal shepherds take them to good pastures. A good uh, leader feeds the people with knowledge. He, will, he goes on to say, He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And so a shepherd feeds. That means to tend, and it relates to providing nourishment. The nourishment is described in Deuteronomy 8.3, that he might know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. For the Christian, the focus is always on the word of God. That is the source of our spiritual nourishment. This is why Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, sanctify them in truth or by means of truth, Thy word is truth. He defines what truth is. It is what's in God's word. And that is the means that God uses to mature us. So we went from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we saw that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He is uh, related thereby to God the Father, who is the Lord is my shepherd of Psalm 23.1. And human pastors are under shepherds. Peter who was taught a valuable lesson by the Lord, which we studied in the previous uh, lesson in John chapter 21, uh, talks to his uh, recipients, you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The word shepherd is the same word that's used to describe the, a, the human leader of the congregation in Ephesians 4.11. It is, it literally, it means a shepherd of sheep, but figuratively it refers to a leader of people or a leader of a congregation. And overseer is the Greek word episkopos, which is where we get our word episcopalian, and it is usually translated as either, either overseer or in the King James it was translated as bishop. Now what's important here is that you have two nouns, shepherd and overseer, you only have one article in the Greek that governs both of these nouns. They fit the pattern of the Granville Sharp rule, which we'll discuss a little later. 
and shows that these both refer to the same person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and but it connects these ideas of being a pastor and being an overseer. They are uh, connected together. If not identical, they are uh, co-relevant to each other. One You don't have one without the other. In Acts 20.17 and Acts 20.28, Paul had returned uh, from the end of his third missionary journey. He wants to uh, speak to and teach and encourage the pastors in Ephesus of the congregations at Ephesus. Ephesus was an extremely large city. Uh, often people say, well, there was only, some people have said there's only one church in each locality. Well, that misses the point of how the word church is used. In, in the, even as a singular, it refers to numerous congregations, even within a region. Uh, so from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus. Miletus was right on the coast. He sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church. Okay, now what's important here is they're identified in this passage as elders. This is the word over here on the top right, presbyteros often translated as elder. It is the word from which we get presbytery. It has an emphasis on those who are older, those who are uh, are mature. So this group that comes to meet him are in this passage identified by the noun elder. In Acts 20, 28, he is addressing them and he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to those he has identified as elders, and now he calls them overseers. That's the noun, bishops. And then the verb to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is the verb in the lower right, poimino, which is uh, the verb related to the noun for pastor, and it's an infinitive of purpose, that the purpose for the elder and the same as bishop, elder, bishop, same person. What's their job? Their purpose is to feed the sheep, okay, to shepherd the church of God. So primarily we have this verb to shepherd, and we only have the noun in Ephesians 4.11. So you have the office of elder, he is, the term emphasizes his spiritual maturity. It's seen in Titus 1, 5, and 6 and used in Acts 20, 17. Then you have the word bishop or overseer, episkopos, which emphasizes the authority and the oversight function of the office of elder, and it is used as a synonym in Titus 1, 5. In Titus 1, 5, you have Episcopos and Titus 1.6, it's the same group are called presbyteroi, elders. And then you have the word pastor, poimenos is the noun, and this emphasizes the role and responsibility of the elder slash overseer. In Acts 20.28 and 1 Peter 5.1, the verb is used to describe their work. 1 Peter 5.1, the elders among you, who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, that's presbyteros. In 1 Peter 5.2, the command, shepherd or feed the flock of God. This is the same verb that's used in John 20, 
1, 15 to 17, which we studied a couple of weeks ago, where, Pe- where Jesus told Peter, feed the flock, feed the sheep, tend the lambs, if you love me. So that's the, that's the role and responsibility. So these three terms basically refer to the identity and the role and responsibility of the same person. That's very important. The role of the pastor, therefore, is to lead, to guide, to feed with the Word of God, protect, and correct. All of this is accomplished through the teaching of the Word of God. We Pastors are to instruct how to think, how to live, how to make biblically wise choices, and how to trust God. We do this through teaching the Scripture. And that's the focal point because it is the word of God that is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is not my words. It is the word of God that is alive and powerful. So we continue to look at what the Bible teaches about feeding the sheep. And in John 20, 15 to 17, Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep, to tend my lambs. Whose responsibility is it to do the feeding and the tending? Peter representing pastors, the apostles. Whose sheep are they? Christ's sheep. Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus told Peter, I will build my church. Whose church is it? It's Christ's church. He's the head of the church. The conclusion from this is that the pastor is held accountable for feeding the sheep. But Jesus is the one who will build his church. Sadly, today, what we have is churches who've hired pastors to be the CEO and to be the administrator of the church and with a philosophy of ministry where he is responsible for building the church through all kinds of sociological, psychological, and business models rather than the model of the church. And so we have churches today where the pastor's job is to build a church, and it's the lay people who are responsible for feeding the sheep. Because they have it backwards, they are fake churches. You don't go to these churches. It doesn't matter how entertaining they are. It doesn't matter how what a wonderful personality they have in the pulpit. What matters is whether you are being fed. And that is the responsibility of the sheep, is to go to the feed and to be fed on the word and to choose a pastor and select a church that has a philosophy of ministry based upon the biblical model that they are to learn the word and internalize it so that they can be transformed by the word into the image of Christ. Peter learned that lesson well, for he concludes his second epistle, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory both now and forever. So that's our role, is to grow in grace and knowledge. It's not apart from knowledge. Knowledge isn't the end result. The end result is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So we're in our passage. We've looked at these previous uh, three gifted individuals, apostles, and prophets, and evangelists. 
We have seen that apostles and prophets were temporary gifts for the first century and were no longer functioning by the end of the first century, no longer given. Uh, They are also spiritual gifts, and they are no longer given as spiritual gifts uh, by the end of the first century. Evangelists are those who primarily are responsible for equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, that is, evangelism. They do evangelism, but their primary mission is to train the rest of us who aren't gifted in evangelism to do evangelism because we're all responsible for evangelizing and witnessing and explaining the gospel to those who are in our our surroundings. Now, when we look at this passage, we have to understand some of the Greek behind it, and I'm going to try to break it down so that those of you, which is all of you, who don't know Greek can understand this this grammar. It's pretty simple, and people have done a great job of tra- trying to translate this in a way that that they can indicate it in the English. Part of the problem that we have is that um, that some of this is not ever translated. There are Greek words that indicate the structure but you don't translate those words. But they've attempted to show the significance of it by translating with the word some. And what the word some does is indicates that this is a listing of people. It could be a listing of various other things, but here it is a listing of people. And you see that they only have the word English word some four times. Now, we've got to drill down a little bit on this and see what that means. So here I have inserted the Greek words in English, uh, the Greek words that some translates. In the first phrase, you have he gave, in the first clause, he gave some as apostles. Now, the word men there introduces the fact that you're going to expect a list. We have we call this a men de construction. The men introduces it. You don't see the word men again, but the next time you see the word some, the word some is a translation now of this little Greek word de. That's a conjunction. Sometimes it's translated and, sometimes it's translated but, sometimes it's translated some other ways. But in this construction, what this is doing is it shows that this is a list. And you have, so you have it introduced. You see this, start seeing a men. You have to look to see if there's a de after it. And if there is, you know it's a list. And so you have to translate it accordingly. So you have a a de before prophets, a de before evangelists, and a de before pastors. But there's no de before teachers. That's very important. Why doesn't that set teacher apart as the same as the others in the list? So in the Greek, what you have is these phrases. The, the words on the left column, tus, 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 and tus, that's the definite article in Greek. Technically, they only, it's not, it's just called an article because there's no indefinite article. And you have the conjunctions here that indicate your list, and then you have your nouns. But you don't have another debt before this last noun, and that is highly significant. So what you have in this last phrase is an article, then the conjunction de, 
then a plural noun, the word and, the conjunction and, and then there's nothing repeated before this last plural noun. That's very important to understand that. This is, there's not a technical rule per se on this, but this is what's really important in the grammar, is identifying this. About a hundred years ago, there was uh, an extremely significant Greek grammarian uh, who is Southern Baptist named A.T. Robertson. And he has a grammar, which I have back in the back, and it's about three to four inches thick. It's the most exhaustive Greek grammar. And he's one of the few Greek grammarians who identifies that this is, the, this is what's significant about this verse, is the way it is constructed here. So that's, that's the issue. Those uses of debt are significant, but because what this will show is that the four groups are listed as I have them here, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor and teacher, poimenos and didaskalus, are tied together because they are both controlled by this death. If they were seen as separate and distinct gifted people, then you would have the debt repeated, but it's not repeated. So what Paul is doing is showing is there is a tight unity between the word pastor and the word teacher. They're not synonyms, but they must be understood as functioning together. So the two questions that must be addressed is this four or five spiritual gifts or gifted men, which is the second question. I think they are gifted men. I've been ambiguous. I've gone back and forth. You find a lot of people who go back and forth. And in this study that I've done in the last uh, couple of days, I'm convinced this is talking about gifted men. What are they gifted with? Well, they're gifted with a spiritual gift of evangelist, prophet, uh, and apostle. But it's focusing on the individual, the gifted man that is given to the gifted person given to lead the congregation. And so that's where the emphasis is, is on these gifted leaders. That is why, and I'll say this about three more times, that is why this is the only place in the Bible. Did you hear me? It's the only place in the Bible where you have the noun pastor referring to a human leader of the church. Now, the common practice is that we've all developed this from the history of Christianity is that it's developed that the leader of the church is now referred primarily by this term pastor. But that's not the primary term that the Bible uses. It's only used this one time for that leader. That doesn't mean it's wrong. You just have to understand where the emphasis is in the, in, in the Scripture. So we have these, these uh, two questions that we're addressing and we have to go back to what we've studied already in the Old Testament and in John 21, that these are the responsibilities of someone who is a shepherd in a figurative sense that is the leader of a, the flock of God. He leads, guides, feeds, secures, restores, protects, corrects. All of this is done through the teaching of God's word. The purpose then comes up in verse 12. 
In verse 12, we read, For the equipping, this states the purpose of these four gifted people, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the word that is translated as equipping in Ephesians 4.12 is the word katartismos. If you can see it, you will see that in the Greek transliteration, I've underlined the uh, center syllable arti, which is the root word. The kata at the beginning is a prefix from a preposition. And the word means training or equipping. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the definition of the word training is to teach a person a skill or a type of behavior through regular practice and instruction. I don't think regular means once a week. That's insufficient. You're never going to be proficient as a piano player or a trumpet player or trombone player as a, uh, as a dancer if you only practice and learn once a week. You're going to starve to death using the feeding analogy. So this is the, the purpose is to equip, which means to train the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the role of the pastor. We have a great example of what Jim Myers has accomplished with the school and with the church over in Kiev because as that, that congregation was scattered, what's happening? They are starting Bible studies. They're getting out and they're uh, witnessing to people. They are uh, doing the work of ministry, and it's not restricted to just what they do with the meeting of the church in Kiev. They're now in five or six different countries and still meeting online. A similar word is used in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, for reproof, that is telling you you're wrong. That's what the pastor does, is he tells you your thinking is wrong. And too many people, oh, he's just stepping on my toes all the time. I'm going to go someplace else where they're going to affirm all of my wrong ideas. Uh, we reprove, that comes from the scripture, not my personal opinion, but from what the word of God says. For correction, that means you're doing this wrong, I'm doing it wrong, we need to do it this way because that's what the Word of God says, and it instructs us in righteousness, in the right way to think and the right way to behave for the purpose that the man of God, which refers to any person who is a believer, male or female, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what is it in the passage that equips us? It's the Word of God. It's nothing else. It's not all these sociological studies you get in all the different pastoral ministries courses in all the seminaries of the world except Chafer. We don't have a pastoral ministries department for this reason. The word here is the word on the right, ex-artizo. See, the root, A-R-T-I, is in the center there. This has the prefix ex, and it has the idea to supply with items needed for a purpose. It's very close in meaning to katartismos. So the purpose of these gifted people is the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So we go back to our main passage in Ephesians 4.11 that the purpose 
for these four gifted people. Their mission statement is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. People who go to a church where the pastor is not equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry are going to a fake church. So the issue is, as we come to the last uh, phrase, that you have the noun pastors, plural noun, and the noun teachers, and they're governed by one article. You have, for example, in other passages, you have the phrase, the God and Savior, referring to Jesus Christ. You have, uh, in, in the case of using two articles there, if you said the God and the Savior, that would indicate two different people. That would create a distinction between them. But if you had the God and Savior, then in Greek, because you have one article governing two nouns linked by the conjunction and, it would equate the two in one person. That, that It's the one person that is both God and Savior. That's very important for understanding the deity of Christ. So here we have this, this in our verse. We come to the last part. And you have an article, you have two nouns, and they're linked with the conjunction and. And there are many people who have come to the conclusion, erroneous though it is, that this is a uh, use of what is called the Granville-Sharp rule. So people may say, well, what's a Granville-Sharp? Well, Granville-Sharp was a brilliant man who lived in the a latter part of the uh, 18th century. There were so many brilliant men on both sides of the pond. I mean, in England, you have men like Granville Sharp. Uh, you have William uh, Wilberforce. Uh, you have um, Edmund Burke. You have many brilliant men on in England, and you have brilliant men, the founding fathers in America. And, and many of these men corresponded with each other over this period of time. Granville Sharp was uh, a polymath. A polymath is someone who has a comprehensive knowledge of a variety of subjects. And he's just an amazing individual. And he was also an autodidact. I used that with some pastors recently, and one of the more educated said, what in the world is that? I thought, well, an autodidact. I said, break it down. You have didaskalos for didact, that's Greek for teaching, auto for self, someone who is self-taught, didn't go to school. And that's what Granville Sharp was. The more I read about him, uh, the more I am impressed by who he was and what he, what he accomplished. If you have kids or grandkids, a great summer project would be to give them assignments to do some research on some great men and women in church history. And uh, Granville Sharp would be one of them. Another one would be uh, William Wilberforce. Another would be an American at the same time who was a uh, medical doctor in Philadelphia, Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration uh, of Independence and, and a great, great believer, uh, just to study these men and learn, learn about them. So Granville Sharp was born in 1735 on the 10th of November, and he lived in until 181813. You see his uh, profile here on the left, and again in the uh, upper left in the picture of these five men, this uh, 
this portrait is in the uh, portrait gallery in London, and you have these five men who are called the heroes of the slave trade abolition. You have Granville Sharp, Zachary McCauley, T.F. Buxton, uh, uh, T. Uh, Clarkson, and then in the center you have uh, William Wilberforce, whose name is most often associated with the abolition of the slave trade and slavery in the, in the British Empire. But he was preceded by, by uh, Granville, Granville Sharp. Uh, Granville Sharp was also a musical genius, and when he would sign notes to his friends, that's why I put this little abbreviation up here, he would just sign it with the initial G and then the symbol for the musical Sharp. So he was an interesting individual. I want to tell you a little bit about him. Um, I read a good good bit of this I got out of Dan Wallace's uh, doctoral dissertation. I'll mention Dan again in a minute, uh, which was called Granville Sharp's Canon. That means Granville Sharp's Rule. Uh, Granville Sharp's Canon and its Kin, Semantics and Significance. And he says that Granville Sharp led a life characterized by a blend of piety, social conscience, scholarship, and Christian grace. The first thing, when you realize what he, uh, his accomplishments, after he was in his 30s, he published a new book every year. You would think that this guy had an incredible education, uh, but he did not. Uh, he was the third child born, the third son born in his family, uh, his father had a modest income but was also highly educated. And uh, Granville, as the third son, didn't get much in terms of an inheritance. Usually the first son got the lion's share of the inheritance, and he was the one who would carry the title forward. The second son would get anything that was left over, and the third son hardly had anything, any crumbs left on the table. So when he, it was time for him to get educated, he was educated just at the local school, the Durham School, but primarily he was homeschooled. He was educated at home. And it was later in life that his two older brothers, who were quite successful and became quite wealthy, one was a, uh, an engineer and an inventor, the other one was a surgeon, and they really financially supported a lot of his academic endeavors and a lot of his achievements. Uh, when he was 14 years old, he was apprenticed to a London linen draper to learn the trade. So he wasn't educated any more beyond that. Um, and he had no training whatsoever in, in languages, no in linguistic training or anything else. Uh, he just knew English at that time. Uh, but he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved to argue and debate, and he did not like to lose in his debates. One of his co-workers was a Socinian. Now, that was a term that was used at that time for a someone who held, held to Unitarian beliefs. They did not believe in the Trinity. And so he wanted to debate him, but in order to do that, he knew he needed to know the Greek language, so he taught himself Greek and he became uh, masterful in his understanding and knowledge of Greek so that he could uh, debate Socinians to prove the deity of Christ. And a couple of these key passages that where his rule applies uh, relate to demonstrating the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, furthermore, he also worked with a uh, Jewish man, 
And so he knew he needed to know how to argue the, the case for Christ from the Old Testament, so he taught himself Hebrew. His knowledge of Hebrew was so great that he read a paper uh, during this time written by the foremost Hebrew scholar of the day, a man by the name of Benjamin Kennecott, who was about to publish a Hebrew Bible. And he was listing, the way he had it structured, he would list all the variants to any particular word from different different manuscripts. And so Granville Sharp, now he's got no formal education, he's just self-taught in Greek and Hebrew, uh, went to him and convinced him that the way to do it was to put the the best word into the Greek t- into the Hebrew text, and then in a footnote put and list all of the alternate readings and the different manuscripts, which is the format that is used to this day. So this is what can happen. Uh, you know, it, this is a brilliant generation. All the men that came out of this generation uh, on both sides of the pond are men, real men. Not not these snowflakey men and gender-confused men that we have today. And they got it from their biblical Christianity. And so this is what the church is supposed to be producing. And so Granville Sharp was a great example of that. And he is uh, also, um, the, also extremely talented musically. Uh, hit four of his siblings would gather together on a almost every day and they would play. He sang. He had a tremendous voice. Some said he had the best voice in all of, all of England. Uh, they would hold concerts. Uh, they all played instruments. He played the clarinet, oboe, uh, kettle drums, harp, and double flute. He made the double flute himself. So... All of this is so you understand that this is not some some average student at Cambridge who came up with some rule. He knew the New Testament backward and forward uh, in the Greek. Uh, during this time in 1765, he's about 30 years of age, he met a black man by the name of Jonathan Strong. Strong had been the slave of a man, uh, David Lyle, who had uh, beaten him and pistol whipped him which left him close to blindness. And so Sharp and his brother took him, put him in the hospital. It took four months for him to recover uh, from his beatings, but this led to one of his primary involvements, which is the abolition, uh, abolition of, of slave, slave trade. He was also very instrumental in the uh, thinking of American founders. He wrote several uh, treatises on government and the role of government, especially in relation to the issues on slavery. He had a lot of correspondence with Dr. Benjamin Rush of Philadelphia, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, also with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. Uh, He wrote a, a pamphlet called A Declaration of the People's Natural Right to a Share in the Legislature, which is the fundamental principle of the British Constitution of State. They didn't have short titles in those days. And that was printed in um, over here in the colonies, 7,000 copies. Franklin printed it, and they were sold out almost immediately. So he had a tremendous influence on the thinking of the founding fathers of the United States. This is quite a man. And he died in uh, 1813, 
uh, at the age of 79, just before, a couple of years before they abolished the slave trade, and then it wasn't until the 1830s that they abolished slavery. So he made this observation about Greek grammar. He says, when the copulative, that's a conjunction like and, when the copulative connects two nouns of the same case of personal description, respecting office, dignity, affinity, or connection, and attributes, properties, or qualities, good or ill, if the article, that's ha in the Greek, if the article or any of its cases precedes the first of the said nouns or participles and is not repeated before the second noun or participle, the latter always relates to the same person that is expressed or described by the first noun or participle. That is, it denotes a further description of the first named person. Now, let me break it down for you. You have an article D. You have the noun pastors. It's a plural noun. You have a conjunction and, and you have a second plural noun, teachers. And so many say this is a Granville Sharp rule, and so pastors and teachers are identical. Maybe. But that's not how the rule reads. So we have to understand basically what it says. In other words, you have this T-S-K-S. That's the scholarly way of presenting it. It's the T is for the article. S is for a substantive noun, pronoun, participle. The K is for chi, the conjunction, and S is for another um, substantive that doesn't have the article in front of it. The second noun refers to the same person mentioned with the first noun. When? Three conditions, he stated. Neither is impersonal, neither is plural, neither is a proper name. Now, notice I have emphasized every time that it's pastors and teachers. It's a, they're two plural nouns, so that means... The three points don't apply. So since these two nouns are plurals, the Granville Sharp doesn't apply, not like in the phrase the God and Savior. God and Savior, we capitalize because we're looking at them as proper nouns. In Greek, they're not proper nouns. So that would identify God and Savior as being the same person. Now, um, I thought I skipped a slide. No. Dan Wallace. Now, Dan was a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary. Dan's just brilliant in, in the Greek. Dan had already had four years of Greek at, at Biola before he came to Dallas Seminary. Now, I don't agree with him on some of his theology. His grammar is probably the best exegetical grammar that's been published. It came out in the mid-'90s. He tends to be lordship. He tends towards progressive dispensation, which leaks out. Uh, in a lot of places, but overall he is he always has to be double checked. I put that in there for the Greek students he always you always have to double check everybody everybody gets influenced by their theology at points, but he makes this wonderful statement this was what he this was his doctoral dissertation. He knows more about this probably than any living person in terms of his study of it. He said after stating the three requirements for the rule to apply, Wallace then comments. When the construction meets three specific demands, then the two nouns always refer to the same person, always. When the construction does not meet these requirements, which this one does not, the nouns may refer to the same person. They may not refer to the same person. You have to look at the, at the context. 
And then he goes on to say, in Greek, when two nouns are connected by chi, that's the conjunction and, and the article precedes only the first noun, there is a close connection between the two. A close connection. That connection always indicates at least some sort of unity. So there is some sort of unity between pastors and teachers, between those two nouns. At a higher level, it may connote equality, that they're equal. At the highest level, it may indicate identity, even if the rule isn't, isn't precise in this case. And now I've just got some, just some um, examples. In Mark 6, 3, we read, Is this, referring to Jesus, is this not the carpenter, the, son, the article, son of Mary, and, your conjunction, brother of James, no article, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So son and brother refer to the same person, but son is not a synonym for brother. So the point I'm making in these examples is that pastor is not a synonym for teacher, but they're referring to the same person. Now, um, you have uh, passages, phrases like the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, where apostle and high priest refer to the same person, but they're not synonyms of one another. First uh, Peter one three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So He is both God and Father, referring to the first person of the Trinity. Uh, with a participle, Matthew twenty seven forty, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. Jesus is talking to, or uh, Jesus is being accused of of, um, uh, of this when He's on the cross. He's saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. So it's the same person who destroys and builds, but destroying and building are not synonyms. Then you have Titus 2.13, the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have an article in the Greek indicating God and Savior refer to the same person, Jesus Christ. So I think I've made my point there. So here we have two diagrams. So it could be either teachers, when you have pastors, and teachers. Teachers could be the overall group, and then pastor would be a subset of that group. The second group, you could have maybe the pastor is going to be the overall group, and you would have a subset of teachers. Now, the second picture would indicate that you have pastors who are not teachers. Teachers are only a subset of pastors. That's not how you understand this phrase at all. Uh, in the top one is the correct one. You have teachers. That's clearly listed as a spiritual gift in, in Scripture. You have teachers who teach in seminaries, teach Sunday school. They're gifted teachers, but they're not pastor teachers. Pastor is a subcategory of teachers. It tells you that a pastor teaches because he's a subcategory of teachers so that every pastor should teach. That's his responsibility. Romans 12, 6, and 7 list various gifts. And I just want to make the point, pastor, the noun, is never listed independently as a gift. You can't go to Romans uh, chapter 12 or to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and find pastor mentioned. You can't go anywhere in the scripture and find pastor listed as a spiritual gift. Here it's a gifted person. This is the only place that noun appears. 
Second, the overlap in meaning between the two indicates that the difference between a pastor and a teacher is in the area of leadership and guidance. Remember our list. A pastor is a leader. He guides. He directs. That's not what a teacher does not necessarily do that. But that's the role of the pastor. He is a leader. And how does he lead and guide? Through teaching the word. Uh, Dan Wallace said, thus, Ephesians 4.11 seems to affirm that all pastors were to be teachers. I would change that. All pastors are to be teachers. A so-called pastor who doesn't teach is a fake pastor. He's not biblical. Harold Honer gets things ambiguous. He was the head of the Greek department at Dallas Seminary all through the time Dan was there. And he says, more likely, these two nouns refer to two characteristics of the same person, who is pastoring believers, and then he adds by comforting and guiding with no proof. Pastor, where do you get that? We have it come up with comforting in one example. That's not the idea. That would be the, uh, usually that would be the word uh, uh, parakaleo, the verb, or paraklesis. That's the Holy Spirit. Um, So you you can't front load your definition with what you get out of churchianity and the culture. Okay, so the role of pastor isn't the comforter. He's the teacher. He's he's the coach. You're the team. So that's what we have here. A.T. Robertson, I mentioned earlier, brilliant Greek professor, says there are four groups here. The titles are all in the same predicate accusative. That means you've got four groups uses the same argument that I do, that it's not based on Granville Sharp, although I think there's relevance. Uh, It's based on the structure. Henry Alford, another fabulous 19th century uh, commentator, uh, uh, five-volume commentaries on the uh, Greek New Testament, some as pastors and teachers, from these latter not being distinguished from the pastors, in other words, it doesn't distinguish teachers from pastors, it would seem that the two offices were held by the same person. This comment comes from Randolph Yeager, a Southern Baptist professor who has an extensive, incredible commentary series on every Greek verse of the New Testament says, thus we have the four God-given types of ministers provided by Christ, the exalted head over all things to the church, which is his body. And it is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through these human agents, that his fullness that filleth all by means of all will be realized in the body of Christ. Note that pastors who are charged with the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God are also charged with the function of Christian education. What we have in the philosophy of ministry is all these megachurches, is you, the pastor is the CEO and he sloughs this off to his Christian ed department and to the lay people in the church. Now, if you're at some, some large church, and I know of some examples, if you're at some large church uh, in Dallas, Texas, where you have uh, eight seminary professors in your congregation who are teaching who are teaching Sunday school classes of two or three hundred people each that's a different little bit different scenario but it's a weird scenario that's not normal normal in the flyover country of 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 the U.S. 
so out in flyover country, you have people who are just self-taught. They haven't gone to Bible college or seminary. They don't have uh, uh, a master's in theology or a doctorate in theology. Uh, Jaeger goes on to say, the pastor who is not academically qualified to teach the word can thus fulfill only one of his functions. I would disagree. I'd say you can't really pastor if you haven't, uh, if you're not academically qualified to teach. He goes on to say, since it is impossible to shepherd the flock of God without teaching them the word. That crucifies 90% of the churches in this city. And yet look at all the sheep that are going there because they don't know any better. It is impossible to shepherd the flock of God without teaching them the word. Teaching is enjoined in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The evangelist makes disciples, the pastor immerses and teaches them. He goes on to say, It is notable also that deacons, treasurers, clerks, board members, trustees, stewards, custodians, choir directors, and ladies' aid presidents, not to mention the ladies who go around in circles, are not included in the list of gifts which our Lord has given to the church. And he uses the phrase pastor slash teacher. And my comment is many others use pastor hyphen teacher, which seems the best way in English to express the men-day construction at the end of this verse, uh, according, according to Wallace. It establishes a unity between the two nouns to show that this gift of teaching differs with the addition of the pastor emphasis, which enhances the normal teaching gift with additional leadership responsibilities. Well, what about hyphen or slash? According to Fowler's Modern English, there are no set rules in English for the use of the hyphen. He says, compound terms are those that consist of more than one word but represent a single idea or idea. They come in three styles. That's the punctuationguide.com. So the conclusion is that the grouping of pastor with teacher is to distinguish this leadership gift from the gift of teaching. The pastor is a gifted teacher with a leadership enhancement feature. Thus, pastor-teacher, with a hyphen, is an accurate and acceptable translation of the Greek grouping. The pastor, therefore, leads and guides the congregation through the teaching of the Word of God. He is not a pastor-administrator. Administration is a spiritual gift. He's not a pastor-administrator. He's not a pastor-exhorter. Exhortation is a spiritual gift, but he's not a pastor-exhorter. He's not a pastor motivator. Motivation is not a spiritual gift. He's not a pastor facilitator. He's the pastor teacher. His role is to teach, and those pastors who do not teach are fake pastors. Acts 2.42. People often talk about, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to go back to the early church? And I often want to tell people, you wouldn't like it. This is what they did. I don't see 30 minutes of praise and worship choruses as part of what they were devoted to. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. 
And by fellowship, they don't mean Christian social interaction. The next two words are appositional. That means they define what fellowship is. Fellowship for the believer is always with God. And so you have two aspects to it. You have breaking of bread, which is communion or the Lord's table, and prayer. That defines fellowship, not as fellowship between believers, but fellowship with God. So what are the priorities in the early church? They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they're devoted to fellowship with God. That's it. Oh, well, we want to have this, and we want to have that, and we want to have this other thing. That's not what the early church did. If we want to be back to the early church, this is what the priorities are. Devotion to teaching. So now we have finished up Ephesians 4.11, gotten into Ephesians 4.12, and we understand that the pastor-teacher is the leader of the congregation, and he leads through the teaching of God's Word. And that is what makes a healthy church a healthy church. Other than that, it's an unhealthy church or a fake church. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this morning. And to be able to go through the scripture in these last four or five lessons in order to understand what the scriptures mean when it uses the metaphor of pastor in describing uh, the spiritual leader of a group of believers, whether Old Testament or New Testament. And to come to understand the priority of this position, uh, regardless of whether we call him an elder, a bishop, an overseer, or pastor, Uh, This is a gifted individual who leads the congregation through the teaching of God's Word. Father, we pray that we might come to understand that because the flip side of that coin is that our responsibility is to be fed by the pastor-teacher, to be in Bible class, to be in church on Sunday mornings, to be listening online if we can't be physically present, to daily be fed the Word of God so that we may grow by it. It is your word that provides that nourishment, being taught by somebody who understands your word and is a gifted leader for that purpose. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening who's never trusted in Christ and still has questions about how they can have eternal life, Scripture is very clear. The solution is what Christ did on the cross. He died. He paid the penalty for our sins. God the Father imputed to him or credited to him our sins so that he paid the legal penalty And so that the penalty is paid, the issue now is, are we going to trust him or not? That those who do not trust him are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not believing is the key. It doesn't have anything to do with our sin, our failures, or uh, practices, or rituals, or anything else. The issue is trusting in Christ, faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for the encouragement from your word today. Pray that we might uh, further understand why we come to church, why we are here, and what its purpose is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.